Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, Mike Coe, and Tim Seymour will join us in just moments. Tonight on Fast, a Bitcoin bloodbath, the cryptocurrency collapsing after hitting its highest level since May. We'll break down what triggered today's coin crash. Plus, Boeing hitting new headwinds, one of its biggest customers walking away from a major order for the new Max plane. We're trading the fallout. And later, a finger-licking freakout. How a chicken shortage is turning up the heat on one big fast food joint. But we start off with another record run for Apple shares jumping more than one and a half percent after the company announced its next product event will take place one week from today. The move adding 40 billion dollars to markets, uh, Apple's market cap today alone. So what is your read on Apple's big move? Guy. I can't wait to the 14th, Mel. You know, I'll be locked into that Apple event as I always have been over the last decade or so. Waiting online. And the, well, we actually say queuing, queuing up, but that's neither here nor there. What do I make of it? Look, Apple's uh, impervious. Apple's a great company. It's a wonderful stock. But let me say this. You know, I always rail against central bankers. Let me rail against this for just a second. Passive investing has been a great thing for the market, I think. It looks past all the bad news. The market just continues to ratchet higher. The biggest winners in the passive investing world have been ETFs. Apple currently is in about 320 or so ETFs, 247 of which have Apple in the top 15 holdings. And, you know, almost by definition, with that passive money coming in, Apple is going to be the beneficiary, about 1.2 billion shares or so owned in these ETFs. It's a great thing. Dan will correctly point out that since September of 2018, although Apple is one of these buy and hold names, you've seen at least three 25 to 35 percent uh, peak to trough decline. We haven't seen anything like that in quite some time. I'm just throwing that out there as we head into the 14th of September. Yeah, um, you may rail against the, the number of ETFs Apple is in, Guy, but isn't, Dan, that a good thing when it comes to Apple's run in terms of the number of hands holding Apple? Or does it make you concerned that everybody's going to head for the exits when they head for the exits at the same time? Yeah, I guess Guy's point is that it's like 77% of the S&P 500, the SPY ETF. It's about 22% of the NASDAQ 100. So nearly a quarter of the weight of an ETF that has 100 stocks in it. I mean, you know, is that a problem? I'll just say this. The stock has actually underperformed the NASDAQ this year. Even making new highs over the last week as it has, it's only up 18% of the year. So it is underperforming. So I can see why, if you thought there's fundamental catalysts, um, why you might buy the stock. I'll just point to fiscal year. 2022 earnings expectations are basically expected to be flat year over year and about uh, two, three, four percent um, up in sales. And so if you think that is going to be higher at 27, 28 times, then it's OK relative to where the market is. I just don't think there's going to be any products next week on the 14th. They're going to justify this sort of move. Um, but, you know, I mean, to, to, to each their own. Have at it, I guess. 
I mean, the, the bar for every single Apple event every single year, I feel, has gotten a little bit lower and a little bit lower. I mean, basically, Michael, there, there are not too many surprises. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be enough so people with old phones will upgrade. People who don't have 5G may want to get a new phone, etc. It doesn't have to be an earth-shattering new phone unveiled. It doesn't have to be earth-shattering. I think a lot of people obviously were expecting this. Uh, obviously, I think the fact that it's such a large constituent in so many sort of index proxies like the ETFs that Guy and Dan were talking about, and the fact that it's trading at, you know, give or take a market multiple, maybe even a slight discount to it. But I think that's deserved. I mean, I think it's important to remember that this is a company that for many points in its history actually traded despite its growth, despite its strong margins and cash flow at a significant discount to the market because people thought eventually either some competition would emerge or that size was just going to become a problem. And I think actually the sign that size is becoming a problem comes down to EPS. If you don't see EPS growth, then it doesn't deserve a higher multiple than it's got right now. Uh, I don't think I'd reach out and grab it right here on this news at all. Yeah. At the same time, Apple's not alone when it comes to market leadership, Tim. And you're pointing this out earlier today. It's like it's like Fang is back, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. And again, if you look at the outperformance of the triple Qs, I think it's it's something like six, six and a half percent uh, to the S&P uh, in the last 15 sessions or so. So you've seen mega cap tech perform overall, but you've actually seen, uh, you know, Netflix join back into the party. So the original definition, the the original kind of you know power club of Fang is mm-hmm. is back. And, and so the question really for investors is, is this a function of the market being concerned about overall growth? And at times this was a really difficult setup going into September, if you think about where we were a year ago, right? You'd seen this enormous rally. Uh, we had that blow off top in, in Apple, I think around 134 or something going into September 2nd. And then you saw the NASDAQ pull back 13% over the next 15 days. Um, I don't think we're positioned for that. And in fact, I know we're going to hear Carter in a little bit, so I'll, I'll save that for him. But I, I do think if you look at where uh, the the lack of follow through from the value trade uh, has meant that you've really seen a lot of this passive money that Guy talks about go into some of these companies. But there's no question uh, the Netflix outperformance, a couple upgrades today is notable. And, and I think that's that stock, which I have not been bullish on. Um, again, you've seen about a 20 percent move in, in 15 sessions or so. Um, really, that's an amazing looking chart right here. I mean, Tim may not think that we're setting up for some sort of a pullback, but Dan, you do. <laughs> you actually walked us through. I mean, do you still feel that way or has anything changed in terms of the price action, the market that we've seen that makes you back away from that forecast? No, I, I, I think that things have gotten unsustainable. And I think that this kind of move back into these mega cap names just tells you it's a bit defensive in a way. And, you know, we just talked about that move in Netflix up 16 percent in the last three weeks. Well, it's up 12 percent. So it was down in the year just two weeks ago. Um, and I think that, you know, Mark Mahaney, who I think raised his price target on it earlier today, said mm-hmm. on the closing bell that mapped this move a little bit right to the Disney results. And when they saw that, and I think that's a really interesting thing. So this is a fundamental take. So I I just look at what's going on under the hood, Mel, and I look at these five names that we're talking about that are $10 trillion in market cap and, and what they are doing to, they're distorting the, the equity markets 100%. And sooner or later, something has to give. And I don't mean to sound like you know we're about to crash or anything like that, but if you look at the S&P 500 and you look at that 200-day moving average just above 4,000, which was a breakout from a few months ago, we're just getting so, we're just levitating here. It's not healthy. Whatever your 
your year-end price target is and what you want is a sustainable move into 2022, the higher we go right now is the harder we're going to fall eventually. And, and, and that doesn't mean sell everything or anything like that. It just means be under, uh, understand, and this is what happened in crypto today, that there is fear coming into this market because there has been none in over 200 days. Why can't we uh, sustain highs and move to new record highs with tech as leadership guy? What's what's wrong with the picture? I mean, I, I get the point that it's in a lot of ETFs. It has been, the, you know, the, the top components of ETFs for how long now? So why now? Why is it a problem now? No, no, no. Listen, I'm not saying it's a problem now. I just was pointing it out just to illustrate the fact that you know, with money just flowing into the market, one of the big beneficiaries of this, by definition, is going to be Apple. My concern, and listen, history has, has borne this out a bit since September of 2018. And Dan can cite the, the exact facts, but you've seen significant sell-offs in Apple on at least three different occasions. And I'm, I'm not suggesting we're at the precipice of one, but just understand how quickly this stock can go down as well. So passive investing is great on the way up. When passive becomes active, it's typically on the way down. So what works for it, you know, going higher can work equally against it when things get bad or when there's a, when there's a hint of bad news. And I think what Dan is illustrating is the complacency now is illustrated in a number of different factors is somewhat concerning. Again, I don't think any of us are calling for a crash. Just understand what's going on below the surface. All right. Let's get uh, the chart master's take on all this. Today's big move in big tech, putting a dent in the idea of a rotation into value stocks. Chart master says, what rotation? Let's get to Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth and why he thinks growth stocks are still the best place to grow your money. So we've just talked about this, Carter, for nine minutes about tech. What are you seeing? <laughs> so, <for? laughs> so, <laughs> so a few more minutes for me. Hey, look, I only got two charts. Let's look at them and then uh, double back and talk about the words value growth. So the first chart is a two panel. And really what it is, is it's the Russell 1000 pure value index on top, making new highs. But look at its relative performance, the Russell 1000 Pure Growth Index. And this is the problem, right? Even as you're making new highs, there's no alpha. There's no alpha in value as it relates to the other choice, meaning growth. Now, the only period here in the history of this index, going back to the mid-1990s, where there was some outperformance, you could see it there on the bottom panel, was in 2000 to 2002. But look on the top panel. Actually, value was just dead flat. So the outperformance is simply a function of the denominator, meaning Cisco losing 90% of its value and Amazon losing 90% of its value and Intel 70. That's not going to happen again. So that if value's only moment to shine was when the other trade growth collapsed, we're not in a circumstance like that. Uh, second chart, and then let's talk a little more. Healthcare. This is my favorite sector uh, in terms of maybe looking at, quote, value or something that's underappreciated. Here, too, a two-panel chart. The top is healthcare since GIC's data begins in 1989. And the bottom panel is relative performance of the S&P. And every single time that the relative performance has dipped down to that trend line, it has bounced to the penny. And guess what happened four months ago? It bounced to the penny. We like healthcare uh, here uh, versus the market. But back to the words. I think the problem with value investing is it's the ever-changing definition, right? The original approach was you buy business assets below their replacement value, and then you sit around, and you wait, and hope for mean reversion. And then they abandoned price to book. They went on to other measures like PEs. And yet, at the end of the day, who's to say that the so-called cigar button investing, it's finding things that are undervalued, 
uh, is doable, whereas just sticking with long-term uh, sort of interrupters, uh, growth names, if you will, is the better approach. And I, I think that's really true. Think about this. Since the 09 low, only two sectors have outperformed the market. And they are, of course, tech and consumer discretion, largely driven by things like Amazon. Hey, Carter, it's Tim. I'll, I'll leave the cigar butts for one of the other panelists. But I, I do think you have a case where if you look at where the 10-year peaked in, in March, you know, that's really your story on, quote-unquote, value investing by any definition. Are, are you tracking that correlation? And as we see yields start to pick up, though, do you feel that this could be uh, the beginning of changing some of that negative sentiment? Sure. So let's talk about that. So before the pandemic hit, 10-year yields were at 2%. And pandemic hits, we dropped down to 40, 50 base points. And then when we got back to 177, there was this great panic. I got to dump my growth assets. Now, before the pandemic, the job at 2% yields before the pandemic is to sit there and do your three to five year DCF work and assign a multiple to your growth stocks. And people had no problems assigning a dreamy multiple to Amazon and Microsoft and Google and Facebook at 2%. 10 years at 177, we've got to dump our growth assets because why? Um, over long periods of time, the definition of investing is holding something that is a disruptor. It's the, it really is, let me just say it simply, it's the car versus the horse. It's the light bulb versus the candle. It's not speculating that I can catch a quick trade in a cyclical name and then I can dump it and then I can try it again. Why not just find something that's really working and stick with it? This is why Carter is in the pantheon of technical analysts. Carter, it's always good Absolutely. to see you. Thank you. Carter Braxenworth, a cornerstone Thank macro. You. Carter always brings the wisdom guy, and it makes sense. But at the same time, we see what the market does. <laughs> the reality is we so, edge yeah, higher, no, and, and, and tech sees weakness. Today was a fascinating day. I know we didn't talk about the broader market. Carter's worth worked work is extraordinary but i found it interesting today and just i'll throw this out there the fact that rates have moved significantly higher off that 113 low in the 10-year yet banks didn't get out of their own way today i just wonder mm -hmm. if we're going to look back at today and say hmm remember that song by always i think it was mr hammer or somebody things that make you go hum well today could be one of those days Mel. just bookmark that please all right coming up Ford getting a boost today as the automaker taps a former Apple and Tesla exec. We are driving into those details next. Plus, Bitcoin dropping hard today. So what triggered this crypto collapse? Our own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, will join us to break down the action. We're live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Fast Money is back in two. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Ford getting a pop today after making a major hire from a big tech name. Phil LeBeau's got the details. Hey, Phil. Hi, Melissa. You know, there are hires in the auto industry every single day. We see them, we go, eh, interesting. And then there are hires that really get your attention, and this is one of them. Doug Field has left Apple and has joined Ford. At Ford, he will essentially be in charge of electric, autonomous, connected vehicles, it's a title that uh, basically falls under Chief Advanced Technology and Embedded Systems Officer. He will report directly to Jim Farley, the CEO. He's not being brought in just to tinker with things. He's being brought in to put a foot, a, a, a stamp on what Ford is doing when it comes to electric, autonomous, and connected vehicles. Here's his resume. Look at this. Now, he was in charge of the Apple Car Program, the Apple Project Titan They've never fully divulged exactly what the end game is going to be at Apple, but over the last three years, he's been there working on that. Prior to that, he was at Tesla, senior VP of engineering. He helped develop the Model 3. Before that, he was at Apple for five years. He began his career back at Ford. Here he is during a conference call just a few minutes ago talking about how Jim Farley convinced him Ford is the place to make his mark. After meeting and talking to Jim and other leadership at Ford, I became convinced that not only was the history here, but that there was a deep desire to really change and embrace these technologies and uh, sort of build the best of both worlds, where the scale and history of Ford can be combined with a completely new set of approaches. Take a look at shares of Ford, and we're showing you a one-year chart here. Remember, it was October 1st of last year when Jim Farley took over as CEO. Boy, has he made his mark in the last year, and this is a big move with Doug Field reporting directly to Jim Farley. Also take a look at shares of Apple. As we've mentioned many times, Melissa, we don't know exactly what the end game is going to be when it comes to Project Titan at Apple, but there is no doubt within the auto industry Doug Field is among a handful of people that is an automatic slam dunk. If you have a chance to get him on your team where he can leave his mark, you hire him. And that's what Jim Farley has done here today. A major statement by Farley and his team that they really want to make a difference when it comes to electric, connected, autonomous vehicles. Not going to happen overnight, but Doug Field will certainly be a big part of developing what the future is in that regard at Ford. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau with all the details there. And I don't know if investors care about what happens with Project Titan, at least in the immediate term, but they do care about what happens at Ford, Myco, given the stock's run and re-rating, some would argue. Yeah, I mean, obviously the stock was higher than it is right now earlier this year, and I think it deserves to get back to those levels. I mean, this is a company that's demonstrated their dedication to adopting these new technologies and the Ford F-150 Lightning, among them, the best-selling car in America, uh, obviously is an example of that. You know, in terms of how well they're executing, uh, I believe Dan actually has one of their electric vehicles already, so he's probably a better one. Our electric cars are from other makers. But 
I mean, obviously, if they can make that transition, this is a company that's probably, you know, it's obviously way cheap to the market right here. And if they're obviously progressing along this course, I'd much rather own Ford than, say, Tesla, despite the big lead that Tesla already has. Dan, is it a Bronco? How's it? How, how no, is it? No, it's a Mustang, Mel, Mustang. It's a Mustang Mach-E. And, and I think that actually the fact that they chose to make one of their first EVs, one of their premier brands, I think was kind of interesting. They kind of messed some things around there and they came out with this car that is a competitor to many um, versions of the Tesla here. I think it's great. Listen, this news is, is really comes at an interesting time where despite the fact that stock being up about 50 percent, like Mike said, is down a lot. From a chart perspective, you look at that 200-day moving average down there near 12 bucks. If you were to get a broad market sell-off and you pick that stock up near there, I think you're going to be pretty happy with it. You know, that $750 billion enterprise value for Tesla and the $53 billion enterprise value for a, a company like Ford, and you think about the opportunity that they have with these new cars coming out and the reformation of this um, model, I, I just think it, it, it seems like a, like a great do here, even that... 13 bucks. Dan compared Tesla with Ford, uh, Guy, but how about Ford versus GM? I think you can own them both. And let me be the first to say I was shocked at the amount that both GM and Ford have sold off over the last couple of months. I mean, it's been significant. Uh, it caught me off guard because, you know, I made a case for GM to 72 and Ford to 18. But I'll make that case again in terms of Ford. And I'm not looking to play would you rather because in this case, I think you can own them both. But Ford's going to earn about $1.90 or so. You give them a nine multiple, Mel, and you, you got a stocks closing in on 18, 17 and a half, 18 bucks. I mean, it just, to me, it's too cheap. Now, people say you don't own these autos on valuation. I understand that. But when they're trading at that significant a discount to the broader market, I think something has to give. All right. Coming up, Boeing under pressure as the plane maker loses a big MAX 10 order. So is there more turbulence ahead? We're boarding that trade in just a few. Plus, we're diving into a crypto crush. Bitcoin dropping hard as El Salvador adopts the crypto as legal tender. The Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, will join us next to break it all down. Fast Money's back in two. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a Bitcoin alert. The cryptocurrency collapsing today. Right now, it's down more than 10 percent. This big move lower. Testing Coinbase, which reported service issues today. Let's get to Eamon Javers, who has been tracking the very latest on this. Eamon. Yeah, Melissa, Coinbase told us earlier in the day that they did have some problems related to volume. They said, though, that that was cleared up at about 1.40 p.m. East Coast time. Here's the tweet that they put out explaining what had happened. They said, Transactions are now going through normally and service issues have been resolved. We've taken steps on our end to maintain stability and keep our services up. Thank you for your patience and understanding while we worked to address this. So what happened here to cause all this? Well, here's the explanation officially from Coinbase. They say a sudden increase in network traffic and market activity led to a degradation in our services. We're seeing improvement with our app services. However, transaction services are still degraded. Fund settlement will be delayed 
while we recover. So not a clear answer in terms of a lot of detail of what exactly happened here, but they're saying simply volume was the problem here. So uh, clearly a lot of interest in Bitcoin today and other cryptocurrencies as we saw what happened in the uh, overall crypto market today. And then there you see uh, Coinbase's stock price itself taking a hit as a result of some of these issues they had today. They do say, Melissa, they've now got it worked out and things should be getting back to normal uh, before too long. We'll see overnight and into tomorrow morning how that actually plays out. All right, Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers tracking this for us. Meantime, the big breakdown in Bitcoin comes as El Salvador becomes the first country to adopt the cryptocurrency as legal tender. Let's bring in our own Brian Kelly. He joins us on the fast line. Um, Beeks, thanks for joining us. What's your take on, on the decline that we've seen? Yeah, so, I mean, I hate to keep saying this, but it is somewhat normal to, to what happens in Bitcoin. And what we saw today was really similar to what happened in May, where you get this cascade effect as stop orders are hit. So we had about... $3 billion worth of stop orders get hit and liquidated uh, in a relatively short period of time. That did coincide with some tweets from the president of El Salvador, as well as some comments from the IMF. So I think what happened is people got spooked, stops were triggered, and we just cascaded lower. What role did the Coinbase uh, difficulties, outages, whatever you want to call it, play in this, if any? Yeah, so all the exchanges actually had issues. When you get that big rush, the exchanges just aren't at the point where they can scale out. So what does it do? It, it creates that vacuum so that on the initial downdraft, there's no buyers there. And then you got to wait till they come, wait till the exchanges come back up before you can get money back in and start buying again. And we're starting to see that now. How big of a deal is El Salvador? I understand the symbolic nature of it, but polls show that people in El Salvador are very skeptical of using Bitcoin. So even if this happens and remittances are, what, 23 percent of its GDP and mostly remittances from the United States, that, that there, might, it, there might be slow adoption, even with this adoption as legal tender. Yeah, I think, you know, listen, even if everybody in El Salvador decided that they wanted to use Bitcoin, um, you know, it probably wouldn't have that much of an effect. It's a sentiment effect, right? And now you've got to think about the other countries that may start using this in South America. Um, you know, you might see somebody, the, the big one would be Brazil if they happen to have a currency breakdown. So it's more about, hey, we're giving this a shot. This is going to be kind of the trial run and everybody else around the world looking at it. That would be the bullish case. At the same time, people may not use it in El Salvador. Yeah. Um, down 11 percent right now, BK. I mean, a baller like yourself, this is probably not a buying opportunity per se, given that you say this is sort of run of the mill, you know, trading action. Yeah, I think this is a buying opportunity. There's, there's okay. nothing about the fundamentals that have um, changed in my view. We're still seeing a lot of institutional adoption. Uh, we're still seeing money printing around the world. So this to me is a is a buying op. Brian, always good to speak with you. Brian Kelly. <laughs> and I haven't called Brian Brian Kelly in years. Um, Tim Seymour, obviously emerging market. I go to the emerging market specialist naturally <laughs> because places like Africa, places like South America, that's where it would make a lot of sense for Bitcoin to be adopted. Yeah, and, and I think whether it's you know fungible, non-fungible, um, the rudimentary kind of usage, we're still 1.0, but this is this is part of the future, and this is part of. Uh, what we've even talked about on Fast Money over the last three or four weeks, especially as we've gotten into the, the boom in, in NFTs and what's been going on in the art world, and, and that you're actually seeing people think about things and actually do conversions back to, back to Ethereum and what, it, what things actually cost. And so we're still so early on this. Um, I, I, you know, I think I said on today's call earlier is that I, I think people are licking their chops on this pullback. 
um, especially when, as Brian reinforced, that this is not fundamentally based, really. So, um, look, I, I just think that there's a lot of people that are starting to get some sense of, of where uh, commercial use is, is beginning. And even if it's in what I still think are going to be a lot of boom-bust dynamics in, call it the art world, but um, for now, I, I think there's been a lot of value that's been been, been created, and, and we'll see. But, uh, you know, I think, again, this is a very large headline in terms of El Salvador, in terms of the sentiment. And, yes, there are a lot of countries around the world where there's zero confidence in their currency, and, and those will be countries that will adopt faster. Um, really bad news for Coinbase. On a day when, when trading volume is really heavy, Guy, for an exchange to have difficulties, I mean, it seems like that's the kind of day that the exchange needs to actually be functioning without a problem. Yeah, extreme volume should be days that they wish for, right? And it shouldn't be a problem. And, and I thought it was really interesting that the stock didn't sell off more than it did. It just speaks to the fact that, you know, Coinbase is not going anywhere. It's here to stay. And even with the sell-off, you're talking about a company with a $65, $66 billion market cap. I bring that up because they might be well-deserved of that. It might be going higher. But if that is, in fact, the case, and I've said this on a number of occasions, the NASDAQ should be a lot worth a lot more than the $35 billion or so that they're trading at. So how do you trade this? Well, Coinbase, I think it's going to be fine. I think NASDAQ is going to be the winner of all this when people realize how valuable a property they are. All right. Uh, Dan's doing that. You know that look that Dan does with his head when he's sort well, of like dismissing I, what somebody else is saying? That's what Dan was doing with Guy. I can't see. I'm sure. I mean, that's typical, no, 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 no. so it's not changed funny? at all. Guy, Guy and I... Guy and I were on a call at 11:30, and yeah. somebody like spoke in our ear and said Bitcoin is crashing. And we went away, and I went and bought some Ethereum. And I just bought some Ethereum since Brian Kelly said it's a buying opportunity a minute ago oh. on Coinbase. It was pretty easy. All right, coming up, AMC is surging as a theater chain smashes Labor Day weekend records. Fans flocking to Disney's new Marvel movie Shang Chi. So has the death of the movie theater been greatly exaggerated? We'll debate that. Plus, we're checking into Airbnb. That stock popping today. We'll tell you what drove the action. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money. Be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. AMC shares topping the tape today. The company says more than 2 million people watch movies at its theaters over the holiday weekend. That's a new Labor Day weekend record. The strong box office driven by Disney's new Marvel movie, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. The movie was released in theaters only and not over the Disney Plus streaming app. Tim Seymour, are movie theaters dead? I, I, you know, I didn't know this was the story behind AMC. Sorry. Uh, I, I mean, are, are we really talking about the resurgence of going to the movies as it was yesterday when, in fact, in 2019, they couldn't make money and were hemorrhaging cash? Uh, I, look, I, I, what do we want to be for AMC stockholders? Do we want this to be a recovery story in the core business going back to, you know, the mid 80s? Or do you do you want to find other use cases? So I, I don't. This, this, this news does nothing to me uh, in terms of getting me excited about the stock. Well, it shows that having a theatrical window might actually be valuable in abandoning it or, or releasing movies simultaneously on streaming and in the theater may not necessarily be the foregone conclusion in terms of the path to success for a release, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it may be... Uh a blockbuster weekend, and it's a blockbuster valuation. I mean, this thing's got carrying a $33 billion enterprise value right now. Even if you went back 
to, you know, if we could roll the clock back and, and everything was going to be, I mean, this is a company that would obviously need to evolve their business pretty materially to justify that valuation. The reason that it's rising and falling these days doesn't have a whole lot to do with whether or not people actually start showing up and seeing movies in person again or not. All right. Well, let's move on to Boeing here. I'm hitting some headwinds today as one of the company's biggest customers walks away from a massive new plane order, Ryanair, halting talks to buy up to 257 MAX 10 planes because of a difference over price. Ryanair is Boeing's biggest customer outside the U.S. Boeing shares down 1.8 percent. Big deal, Guy? I think it's a big deal, only in the context of the hits just keep on coming. They can't get out of their own way, Boeing. You know, at a certain point, all these bad headlines, and there have been a lot of them over the last six to nine months, in my opinion, are going to come home to roost. Now, the question is, is it all in the stock or is there still some room to the downside? To be honest with you, given all the things we talked about at the top of the show, 195 to 200, the level we saw at the end of January, might be right in the crosshairs here. And then you take a look at the stock there. So I do think it's a big deal. Uh, if it was in a vacuum, I wouldn't say, would say not so much. But in the context of everything we've heard, for the last year or so, I think, yes, it is a big deal. Tim, you disagree? I do. Uh, look, I, I mean, Boeing's, first of all, just Boeing the stock. Stock's absolutely flat to the airline industry if you want to chart it against the Jets ETF or whatever you want to do. Uh, the uptrend off the March 20 uh, low, not as impressive as other stocks, but and near you know the bottom end of that channel, but it's, it's intact. I think if you look at Boeing, uh, first of all, they have six straight months of net positive orders. Um, in, in July, I think they had 14 commercial orders. Uh, Airbus had zero. So, I mean, again, the story of Boeing is not that, that it's, it's falling apart. The, the story of Boeing is that the entire industry is under a lot of pressure, and that includes the airlines. I, I, I think if we're focused on execution at Boeing, um, fact that, that we're not focused on the 737 MAX disaster is really probably the, the bright spot here. But again, uh, this is a $275 stock at its historic kind of free cash flow. And I don't mean historic boom time. I mean around 15 bucks a share of free cash flow, which is not an extraordinary number. Let's see where they get in the next couple of years. But um, you know I'm long the stock. So I, you know, this kind of news, I, I think, is it, it makes for a great headline, but it just doesn't change the story. Uh, Dan, this is a Boeing-specific story. Well, it changes the story if they lose the deal, if they go to Airbus. I mean, you know, so we don't know. It's interesting that this is on the 737 MAX, right? And does the Ryanair think they have a whole heck of a lot of leverage because this was a really not a great headline for them? So if they lose the deal, I have to assume it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive black eye um, for them. So to me, I, I'm kind of more with Guy. I see this thing making a series of lower highs here, and I don't know what the next piece of good news is. And if they do end up getting this deal and they arrive at a price, we're not going to know exactly probably what it is per plane or anything like that. Um, but, you know, if the stock doesn't react well, then it's probably, you know, remains in this downtrend. All right. Coming up, shares of Airbnb climbing higher today. The home rental company outpacing its peers in recent months. We'll check into that one. Plus, options traders stretching into Lululemon ahead of earnings tomorrow. But is this a name in need of a warm-up? More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following a developing story out of the Fed. Let's get to Bertha Coombs with the details. Bertha. Melissa, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan made nearly two dozen trades valued at more than a million dollars in 2020. That, according to financial disclosures provided by the Dallas Fed, the Wall Street Journal reporting Kaplan had 27 individuals holdings valued at over a million dollars, including popular fang names like Apple, 
Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, and Tesla. He also held Boeing, Marathon Petroleum, and Chevron, which was among the trades that he made valued at more than $1 million. Now, those trades and holdings were approved by Dallas Fed Council. The disclosure was more than any of the others in the Fed. 11 of 12 reported their holdings. Kaplan, of course, a former vice chairman of Goldman Sachs, where he worked for more than two decades. Melissa? Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs, I saw the headline to the store and I thought, what? <laughs> Fed presidents can trade stocks? And this guy had all these positions of more than a million dollars each, each. Guy, what do you think? Well, let's be very careful here. So let's just assume for a second that everything is to Bertha's story was above board, disclosed, yes, absolutely. Uh, signed That's off on all issue. those things without question. <laughs> Nothing wrong whatsoever. The optics of this are awful in a word. It's awful. And so people looking at this say, see, the game is rigged. Look what's going on here again. I'm not saying that he did anything wrong. We're not suggesting that at all. But the optics are terrible. And I, in my opinion, they all should know better than that. He was at Goldman Sachs for 23 years. I think he was named partner in 1990. Extraordinarily wealthy man, which is great. But when you take a position like all these uh, men and women have taken, I think there's a certain, um, I think you have to rise above certain things. And trading stocks to me is one of them. Again, not suggesting anything was done uh, wrongfully, illegally, illicitly, any of those things. But the optics are just awful. And, it was, and there was nothing wrong. And let's underscore this point, that the general counsel of the Dallas Fed reviewed every single trade. This was all above board. That is not the issue. The issue here is, should these trades have been permitted in the first place? Or should we limit trading activity of, of sitting Fed officials? Tim, what do you think? Well, you know, tell me what Fed policy is going to be. And I can tell you what you know, a lot of stocks are going to do. And there are stocks that are going to benefit from easier Fed policy. There's stocks that are going to decline from easier Fed policy or the opposite. So, uh, look, ultimately, the Federal Reserve is the most powerful body, um, arguably, in the world. I mean, let's be clear. Um, you know, the, the, the impact on, on the globe from the Federal Reserve over the last three to four decades is nothing short of astonishing. Um, so the fact that these folks, again, uh, the individual stocks and connection to underlying or bottom up elements of those particular stocks doesn't bother me at all. Um, and again, I'm sure approved and conflicts are vetted and this and that. And again, I will say what we've all just said. Um, no, no presumed, con no presumed uh, impropriety in any single way. Uh, but the Federal Reserve is to me, again, you know, as we talk about the outlook, this could have been part of our, our entire A block. Um, tell me what the Fed's going to do, and I'll tell you what stocks are going to do. You know, we have a lot of these Fed officials on constantly. We're always interviewing them. We've, of late, we've asked them all about tapered timelines. We should have asked them about their portfolios, Mike. I mean, that might have provided more insight uh, into where the Fed is going. I think that we probably made assumptions that their portfolio behavior was kind of like Alan Greenspan's. You know, Alan Greenspan accumulated a decent-sized portfolio himself. It was all fixed income, and he really didn't touch it very much. But, of course, my next question would be, does it really matter what they own when they've got their finger on the trigger? If you own stocks or bonds and you have easy monetary policy, we've seen what the bond market has done for 30 years now. Obviously, it's been very good for bonds, and it's been even better for equities. And 27 transactions over the course of a year, I mean, I realize that sounds like a lot for people who probably aren't that active in the markets, but Kaplan has a big portfolio that's two transactions per month. 
I mean, I think a little bit of perspective is warranted, but you would think that somebody in his position, as Guy pointed out, would understand that the optics of this are not great. I like that point that Mike is making, Dan. It doesn't matter what you own, <laughs> because in this environment, everything goes higher. Yeah, it just seems like a needless headline. I would just say this, that, you know, I have a lot of friends at financial institutions, whether they be investment banks or, um, you know, on the buy side, they can't trade single stocks. They, they, there's just too many potential conflicts. So they can trade ETFs and they may have some holding periods. It just doesn't make any sense that Fed officials or people in Congress, for that matter, who I think have looser um, restrictions and maybe even better access on a single stock basis than maybe somebody at the Fed might. So to me, I think they need to do do away with all trading by congressional people. And then in the Fed, they probably need much stricter rules around it. It just makes no sense. And if people don't want to take those jobs because they want to trade stocks and options, then they should go do that. They can watch Fast Money every day at five o'clock. <laughs> they can do that no matter what, by the way. <laughs> Coming up, we're stretching into Lululemon ahead of earnings tomorrow. And options traders say this one may just be shy of meeting its fitness goals. Love more on that next. Plus, finger licking gone. Attendee tantrum hitting KFC will explain when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Lululemon shares ticking lower in today's session. The Athleisure Wear Company reporting earnings tomorrow after the bell. One options trader is betting that it could be about to stretch way lower. Mike's got the action. Mike, what'd you see? Stretch somewhat lower, maybe. I don't know about way lower, but we did see puts outpacing calls on more than 2.8 times the average put volume. And right now, the options market is implying that Lulu could move about 6% after earnings. That's basically in line with the 5% or so that it's averaged over the last eight quarters. Weekly puts were the most active, and a lot of that was a function of a buyer of the 387.5. 355 put spread that expires this coming Friday. They spent $8.90 for a few hundred of those. Buyers of that put spread are risking about 2.3% of the current stock price on a bet that the stock could finish as much as 8% lower by the end of the week. Dan, how are you feeling about Lulu? Yeah, you know, Guy will tell you, just made a little bit of a double top there. Um, expectations are still high. It had a massive run from the lows in May here, and that range seems about right. So if they miss trading 55 times, um, it probably heading back down 10%. Mike said the implied move, what, 5 or 6%? And the average, that's how much it's moved after earnings? Makes sense to me. I'd rather be looking down than up on this one. Down, like downward-facing dog? I don't know how there many yoga go. yoga sayings you could fit into this. Uh, for more options, actually, be sure to tune into the full show. That's uh, Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, here's a story we've all been waiting for all night. Grab your tendies while you still can, of course. KFC choosing not to advertise their chicken tenders as hungry customers flock to the boneless chicken craze. The decision follows a major supply chain crunch as a national labor shortage strikes the poultry market. Um, this is a, a dinner or a snack or a lunch denied, Tim. It's not put off. It's denied if I, they can't get those chicken tenders in. I, it's, it's a dinner, snack, and a lunch for me. I mean, you know, chicken McNuggets. Oh, whoops, KFC. Excuse me. I do mean the colonel. Um, no, boneless chicken and, and, you know, all related products. The question is, I mean, whether you're having drumsticks or, I mean, are we actually, isn't it the same thing? 
and does not advertising. I guess we know the linear relationship between advertising and sales, but um, I, I can't believe it's any different for all of their other products. This is a little confusing to me. Uh, meanwhile, the stock's been on a tear, um, and it does look like it's falling under some pressure. Well, boneless chicken requires somebody, a human being, to remove the bones from the chicken guy. And I mean, as far as I know, chickens aren't raised without bones. And so that's why the labor shortage <laughs> strikes this part of the menu. Um, but is this going to be, a, I mean, this yeah. presumably, guys, a problem for a lot of restaurant chains, a lot, you know, across the board. Yeah, listen, I mean, there are a number of different ways we can go with this one. Let me just say this. By announcing they're not going to advertise that's about the best advertisement they could possibly make. There's going to be a mad rush to KFCs for these chicken tenders or whatever they're calling them. So I don't know. I, you know, I'm, you know, the conspiracy theorists in me with all these commercials and advertisement stuff. So I mean, you, you think Coca-Cola there is no shortage? Being the, no, I'm not, listen, I have no I can't speak to shortages of chicken tenders. Well, you know, I got some frozen chicken in the freezer, so I'm fine for a while. But I think whatever KFC is doing is genius. Dan, what say you? Um, I'm more interested in that McDonald's McFlurry machine story than this KFC story. That one we got to save for another show, Mel. Oh, I mean, the McFlurry investigation, hopefully that'll yield answers for all those people out there denied their McFlurry when they walk into a franchise. Mm. Apparently it costs $18,000 to fix something like that. That's part of the problem there. Um, Let's get to the final trade, shall we? Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, look, Ford at four and a half times EV EBITDA is ridiculously cheap. Um, Jim Farley doing a crazy good job there. I love that story, as you know, and this pullback should be bought. Mike Coe. Yeah, I like Ford, but I also think that Boeing might be getting just cheap enough that it's worth a look. There's only two big players in the space. Airbus is one. They're the other. And I think there's a lot of bad news priced in. Dan Nathan. Yeah, so that Bitcoin, Ethereum, that whole conversation on the crypto really um, interests me here. I like Ethereum. I'm a buyer on dips. I have been this year. I bought some today. I'll be buying it uh, the lower it goes over the next few days. Guy Dami. Listen, I don't want to get down this McFlurry rabbit hole, but it's a productivity thing. They don't want they they don't want to make the McFlurries or anything. It, it takes, takes a lot too of time much time. To make. It's a pain in the neck. That's why these machines are breaking. Come on, let's call it like I mean, somebody, it is. It's somebody with you a McFlurry bat fans to the machine. <laughs> go, to, anyway. go to Dairy Queen. Uh, Netflix is breaking out, by the way, Mel. I think Netflix continues to go higher from here. It's always off the rails in the last 30 seconds. That does it for us this hour, but do not go anywhere. we got a special bonus edition of Fast Money, which starts right after this quick break. you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course, where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.